Thank you. It's a great privilege for me to be here with you this evening. Dr. Bergwald has been trying to get me here on tap for a while now, and it's finally fit into my schedule. So uh, I'm delighted to be here, and it's a great privilege for me to speak with you tonight about something that's very dear to my heart, the Holy Sacrifice of the Mass. As Dr. Bergwald said just over a year ago, I made a promise before God and His Church to model my life after the mysteries that I celebrate. And the more I do that, the more I come to realize how unworthy I am to stand before God with His people and offer the sacrifice of the Mass. And how important it is for me as a priest to come to know why it is what we do at Mass and to help the people of God to know the very same thing so that they can do what we do at Mass with a greater and more active conscious participation. Before we do this tonight, why don't we begin with a prayer? And I'd like to use the prayer from today's Mass. Today we are celebrating the memory of St. Peter Claver, and we call upon his intercession this evening to help us study God's sacred mysteries, the Holy Sacrifice of the Mass. Let us pray. God of mercy and love, you offer all peoples the dignity of sharing in your life. By the example and prayers of St. Peter Claver, strengthen us to overcome all racial hatreds and to love each other as brothers and sisters. We ask this through our Lord Jesus Christ, your Son, who lives and reigns with you, and the Holy Spirit, one God, forever and ever. Amen. Tonight I want to do two things. I want to focus on two parts of the question, why we do what we do. And the why first, and the what. Because each one of us knows when, and more or less how well, we do what we do at Mass. And so to begin with, let's look at why we do what we do at Mass. If any of you are like me, you wake up in the morning and you go through your normal routine. You wake up at 6, and the first thing you might do is stretch, I don't know, or take a shower, or maybe it's to brush your teeth first. And then you take the shower and you get out and you put your pants on, right leg first, left leg first, Socks, right foot first, left foot first. Shoes, right foot first, left foot first. And if anything in that ritual gets interrupted, the whole day is messed up. If you wake up even five minutes late and you miss the alarm, all of a sudden your heart's racing and the day's gone. It's the very same thing at Mass. We have ritual to keep us online with what we do day after day as Catholics, to keep us focused on God, to make sure each week things happen as they should, so that nothing gets out of line. And if something happens to break up that ritual, we experience maybe a lessening in the Mass. Certainly, if something as big as somebody collapsing up on the altar, one of the servers, interrupts the ritual, it disturbs what happens. 
And so we have this sense of ritual. This is one of the reasons we do what we do each week. Now I play the piano, or at least I used to. I'm somewhat retired. My mother doesn't like to hear that, but I don't have time to play anymore. And one of the things I heard as I was growing up was perfect practice makes perfect, or at least practice makes perfect. So my teacher would tell me to play the same song three times over and over each week until it got perfect. The ritual we do at Mass enables us to perfect what we are here to do on earth, and that is to give glory and honor to God. First and foremost, through the public liturgy, and then from there, out in the world, wherever we may be, Walmart, in our workplaces, in our homes. And so each week we have a ritual. It happens the same every week. All that changes, really, is a few words. An opening prayer and a closing prayer. A gospel and a more or less good homily. And so the church is trying to teach us through this weekly ritual how to perfect what we do at Mass. Now, the danger is that it becomes routine. And that's why it's important for us to study what we do so that it doesn't become routine. In fact, Cardinal Ratzinger, when he was still cardinal, wrote this. The rite, or we could insert the word the ritual, celebrated faithfully and festively, really makes it new each time and makes it a new presence. It necessitates a change of mind. The sitting, the standing, the kneeling, the speaking, the listening, week after week, can become routine. Or, if we come prepared, it can become new and make new each week the presence of God. And so we have ritual to keep us on track, to keep us focused, and to perfect that which we are here for in this world, to give glory and honor to God. Some of you may enjoy cooking. I do. Some of you might even just put a little bit of sugar in your coffee every morning. Well, when I first got to Our Lady of Guadalupe, I was getting ready one morning to put the sugar in my coffee. And I had mentioned earlier in the week to my deacon that we were getting low on sugar. He said, well, there's sugar down in one of the cupboards. I was still learning what was in the cupboards. Well, at a quarter to five in the morning, I'm in there looking for the sugar, and I find this clear glass jar that's got a white substance in it that looks like sugar. Now, I went, took it out, opened it up, took my teaspoonful, put it in my coffee, went to put my toast in, came back, and I put it, the cup up to my mouth, and I about gagged, because it was salt <laughs> and not sugar. It was an entirely different substance. 
And so the church asks us each week to do the same thing and to use certain things and to say certain things because she has a recipe in mind. And if we stray from that recipe, we may end up with salty coffee instead of a bittersweet morning wake-up experience. Each week then, the church gives us a ritual. And you and I can take the book, the Missal, and turn to what's called the Ordo, or the Order of the Mass, and find out how it's to happen. It's not called an Ordo or Order for nothing. There is an order, a ritual, and it's there to help us each week to give God glory. And as we come to learn it week after week after week, to experience anew the presence of God made present through the Mass, and then to give Him glory and praise through our conscious, active, and fruitful participation. And so our late Holy Father, Pope John Paul II, encouraged pastors, first and foremost, to study the Ordo, or to study the general instruction, which tells you how to do what's in the Ordo, and then to share that with the faithful, so that they might know what to do when they come to Mass, and why we do it. And these things, the Ordo not so much, but the instruction do give some of the reasons why. And when we shift to the second part of the talk, we'll look at that. One last reason why we have ritual. What we do at Mass is not about you and me. It's about God and giving Him glory and honor. And the danger is that often what we do at Mass becomes about you and me. Again, our Holy Father, when he was cardinal, said that what happens often is our worship becomes self-contained. It's a worship of the community and not a worship of God. And so the ritual is there to take the focus off of you and me. The Holy Father, then Cardinal, said this. There is a, in the liturgy, one doesn't grasp what's going on in a simply rational way, as I understand a lecture, for example. But in a manifold way, with all of the senses, and by being drawn into a celebration that isn't invented by some commission or committee, but that, as it were, comes to me from the depths of the millennia and ultimately of eternity. What you and I celebrate has a 2,000-year tradition and then even further back in our Jewish roots. It also has a link that's not just temporal, but eternal. And every time we come to Mass, we can touch heaven if we are but aware. And so the ritual is there to help us enter into this reality of something that is beyond us, something that is not our own, and that ultimately is not about us. It's about God 
and giving him glory and honor. And so Cardinal Ratzinger then said, when the priest, and we can extend that to the people, withdraw completely and simply present things through his believing action, then the action no longer circles around him or, by extension, the people. Rather, he steps aside and something greater comes into view. The more I celebrate the Mass, the more I realize, as I said in the beginning, how unworthy I am to be there at the head of the community. How unworthy I am to stand in the person of Christ. And yet how easy it is to be the one who has all of the eyes on him and is the center of attention, the showmaker. If Father Walks does not get out of the way, I fail in my mission as a priest. I must become so transparent that Christ Himself, who is offering the sacrifice, is made present. And so the church has a ritual, a routine, a rite, an order, so that Father Walks does not invent things to make it exciting for the people, to take them out of their boredom, to help them. No. I am there to help them enter into the ritual so that as they do it more perfectly each week, they come to encounter God who is made new and present and more active in our lives each week. And so why do we do what we do each week? So that we can focus on God, not ourselves. So we can perfect our giving glory to God and so that you and I can get out of the way and focus on God. And in the process, we become more who we are, the people of God, sons and daughters of God, giving glory and honor to our Father, and then learning about our faith. Because the final reason we do what we do is because the liturgy, the Mass, but the liturgy in general, the sacraments, each one of them, presents the faith to us. And so if I change the red, which means to do something or not to do something in the order, or if I change the black, the words that I am to say, I manipulate that which the church is trying to express to the people. The Catechism says this, the church's faith precedes the faith of the believer. Who is, an who is invited to adhere to it. This is number 1124. When the church celebrates the sacraments and most especially the Mass, she confesses the faith received from the apostles. You can hear Cardinal Ratzinger's words, something that is rooted in the millennia. Whence the ancient saying, lex orandi, lex credendi. The law of believing is the law of praying. And so if I say our mother who art in heaven means something very different than our father who art in heaven. Or if I say 
May Almighty God receive this sacrifice at your hands instead of, um, well, I changed it. This is the people's response. Um, well, it just slipped out of my mind. We'll leave it. If I change the words, I change possibly the presentation of the faith. As something as simple as an A or an the. You are a God who gives us peace. You are the God who gives us peace. The church gives us what to say and what to do so that the faith which is not ours but is hers and comes to us from God, not something that we have, in, have invented, can be presented to us so that we can hand it on to the future generations, pure, holy, and immaculate, week after week. So that as the Roman canon says, the one holy, perfect, and immaculate sacrifice is made present, God is given glory and honor, and the people of God learn their faith from their mother, the church. And so we do what we do so that all of this can take place. Now let's look at what we do. You've got before you an outline. Now we're not going to go through the whole thing tonight. I've got a lot in there for you to peruse at your own leisure. And a lot of this comes from uh, the general instruction, which I mentioned earlier. It also comes from other sources. Our faith is very rich and the liturgy is very rich. And so, uh, there's a lot more even than what I have here in this outline. Basically, what happens at Mass is the sacrifice of the cross is made present in an unbloody way. And God speaks to His people, and His people respond. This is, in a nutshell, what we do week after week. And if we understood what we do each week, if we had a true understanding of that, we would die because of the glory and the splendor of what is there. One cannot behold the face of God and live. And the face of God is made present in sign and symbol each week. And the God who made us, who loves us and desires for us to be with, in communion with Him comes to enter into us and if we understood even just a little bit more, it would necessitate a greater response on our part. We wouldn't need stewardship campaigns. We wouldn't need to raise funds for Hurricane Katrina. The people of God, understanding who they are before their God, would respond because the love of God impels them. The love of God that is experienced week after week impels them. And then as they go forth to share that love, they feel a need to come back and be nourished again by that love, by the God who dwells in them and radiates from them each week. And so what happens at Mass? God speaks to us, and we listen, and we respond. This happens primarily in the Liturgy of the Word. But before we get to the liturgy of the word, there's some introductory parts of the mass. The priest walks in in procession. The royal king, Jesus, is made, made present in the king, in, in the priest, excuse me. 
And he comes to be the head of his people, gathered in his name, in the person of the priest. And so those who are sitting or kneeling all stand. Just as if President Bush were to walk into this room, we would all stand to recognize his office. Not the man, President Bush, but the president. And so we all stand at Mass to recognize Jesus present in the head of the community, the priest. Not a lay woman or a lay man, but the priest, the one ordained by God to stand in the presence of Christ at the head of the community as its shepherd, as its father, and in a very real way, as its bridegroom or spouse. And so we stand. We sing to show our joy. And our voices unite to recognize our King, to praise Him as we come to praise Him through this Mass. We move quickly to a recognition that we're not worthy to be there. And so the priest invites us to recognize our sins. Not so much individual sins, but we can do that. But more our unworthiness, our sinfulness. We reflect upon it and instinctively we cry out, Lord, have mercy. Christ, have mercy. Lord, have mercy. And the priest echoes it. May Almighty God have mercy on us. Forgive us our sins and bring us to everlasting life. It's why we're here. Not to have life on this earth, but to have life in heaven. And so we're here each week. We're here in this world to get to heaven. And we cry out to have mercy on us, to give us the nourishment we need. And then we, we give glory to God because we recognize He does give it to us, that mercy. And so we glorify Him, we praise Him, we bless Him, we adore Him in the Gloria. And then the prayer of the people. All of your prayers are gathered into the one prayer that, to, that the church presents that particular week, whether it's Christmas, and so the mystery of Christmas is made present in the opening prayer, and all of the desires and hopes, sorrows and pains of your hearts are united to that prayer and offered to the Father, the priest says, let us pray, and gives you, hopefully, some time to pray. It says it there, silence, a brief moment, so that we can pray. But often, let us pray, God of mercy. Did we pray? No. We stop to pause to pray. We're not in a hurry, even though the Vikings are going to have their opening game this coming Sunday at noon. I've got Mass at noon, and I'm not going to rush through it. Because the Vikings, quite frankly, can wait. God is why we are here. And if more people understood it, it wouldn't matter how long we were there, or how hot it was in the church, or how cold. And so we pray. And then Godless hears our prayers, and He speaks to us through the readings, the first reading. Whatever the feast may be, Christmas, Easter, the first reading from the Old Testament foreshadows it, points to the reality and then, hopefully, a moment of silence so that we can listen to what God has just spoken to us. We're seated, just as you are seated right now, because seating, being seated is a posture of reception. We listen, 
we think, we ponder, and then we have the responsorial psalm. Responsorial psalm. We respond to God. We speak back to Him. That's why it's important that we use the words that are given to us. You and I have no response to the God who is infinite and so worthy of everything that we are. And so we use the Word of God itself to respond to Him. A psalm. It's there for us to speak back to God. You are great and glorious. You are merciful. You are rich in compassion. Whatever the response is, it's a response back to the God who has just spoken to us. And then God responds again in the New Testament reading, usually through St. Paul, to either comment on some facet of the mystery being celebrated or to give us a plan of attack based on the, the mystery that's being celebrated that particular day. And hopefully, again, there's a moment of silence to regurgitate it in our hearts, to ponder it, and then to respond through the acclamation, the gospel acclamation. Each time there's a reading, the lector says the word of the Lord, and the people respond, thanks be to God. Often it's a challenging word and we flippantly say thanks be to God without having thought about the challenge that is in that word. You must take up your cross and deny yourself. Thanks be to God. Praise to you, Lord Jesus Christ, for these words. We respond in the gospel acclamation again, not with our own words but with a Bible verse, usually from the gospel that's about to come, to acclaim our King, who is going to come and speak to us His very Word in the presence of the priest or the deacon, or most perfectly in the presence of the bishop, who preaches to us, and in His person, Jesus speaks to us Himself, the Word of God. And that's why we say, praise to you, Lord Jesus Christ, after the priest says the gospel of the Lord. The priest goes down to kiss that very word. Not the book, but the word. And he says, may the words of the gospel wipe away our sin. Because we recognize we need that word. That word saves us. It's the word made flesh that we're about to receive in the liturgy of the Eucharist. And then God speaks to us again this time through his minister, the priest, deacon, or most fully, the bishop. And hopefully we have a time after the homily to ponder it or to pray for our priest that he might grow in an understanding of the Word of God more and more each week so that he might present the faith to us in a more faithful, fruitful way. And then what do we do? We stand. And we profess the faith, not our faith. It is our faith, yes, but it's the faith that I, as I quoted from the catechism, that precedes us. And so the church doesn't ask for anything but the people to stand and proclaim, profess their faith. So really there should not be, let us profess our faith. It shouldn't be needed. Because our immediate response should be, we believe in one God the Father Almighty, the Creator of heaven and of earth. We believe in Jesus who suffered, died. We believe in His Holy Spirit, the giver of life. 
believe in the church, the resurrection of the dead, and life in the world to come. And after we've professed our faith, we recognize our need. And this is your part, although the priest or deacon normally writes the prayers. It's your needs, the needs of the whole church, really, that are being presented through the petitions, the prayers of the faithful. And they should reflect the needs of the church for the living, because we pray for the dead at other parts of the Mass and at other parts of the day. And so the church gives us again a recipe. First for the church, the members, the leaders, the needs of the church. Then for the world. Then for those who are suffering, persecuted, for peace, whatever it might be. And then for the community gathered. And the priest gathers then all of those prayers and presents them through a simple prayer. And then we move quickly into the liturgy of the Eucharist. The Word of God who was made present through the spoken Word is about to be made present in the flesh so that that which we have heard and um, chewed upon in our hearts can be chewed upon and conform us to Himself in the Holy Communion. This is the climax of what we're about to do. And so the altar is prepared. Yes, it is a meal, but that's not the focus. It is a sacrifice. That's why it's called the Holy Sacrifice of the Mass, made present in the sign and symbol of the Last Supper. Jesus said, do this in memory of me, pointing to Friday, in which he would die, shed his blood for the salvation of all men. The altar is prepared. The gifts are brought forth by the people as a sign of their offering to God for the goodness that he's been to them throughout the past week under the sign of bread and wine, the simplest things of the earth, and the most necessary. Now, one might argue wine is not all that necessary, but... I think it's good, and it gives joy to the heart, as the scriptures say, and in it is truth. Theology on tap. So we present bread and wine, symbols of our offering to God. And as that offering is being made, we should be offering ourselves, our thoughts, our minds, our wills, our whole being, our joys and hopes, sorrows and pains, everything that we are, everything that we desire, Everything that we need, we offer it to God and we present it to His minister, the priest, who then takes them and offers them. Blessed are You, Lord, God of all creation. Through Your goodness we have this bread to offer. It's not of our doing, but it's through His doing. Everything is about God because You and I have nothing. We are nothing. We are desperately in need of God. And He provides the very gifts that we have to present to Him. He receives them. And then the priest washes his hands. In the old days, he would have been sweaty possibly. If he used incense, he might have incense on his hands. And so he cleans his hands. But also to recognize his sinfulness. As he washes his hands, he says, Lord, wash away my iniquity. Cleanse me of my sin. Make me worthy to do what I'm about to do. And then he invites the people to pray. And everyone stands. 
Now, many of you experience the change. We used to sit for that, and now we stand. Why? Because as a people, we stand to pray. The opening prayer, you're standing. The closing prayer, you're standing. The creed, you're standing. And after the 69 revision of the Missal, somehow it slipped, and we sat for the prayer, uh, may Almighty God receive the sacrifice at your hands. And so the church recently asked us to stand, to uniform, make uniform our posture of prayer. And so we stand to pray. And you pray, receive this sacrifice for our good and the good of all the church. And then the priest gathers all of your prayers into a prayer. And then we move quickly into the Eucharistic prayer, the climax of the Mass. In this prayer, the sacrifice is made present. We give thanks to God. Eucharist means it. Eucharistic prayer to give thanks to God for everything He does and is for us. And as we do that, the priest takes and does the very same thing that Jesus did and the sacrifice that is perfect, holy, and living is made present. Jesus' offering of Himself that alone saves us, that alone gives glory and honor to God. And that is alone our hope. This is why, as Catholics, we hold so dear what we do. And we, in some ways, invite our separated brethren to participate but to participate as best as they can because they don't believe the same thing we do. This is why when it comes to Holy Communion, we don't invite them forward to receive because they don't have the same belief in what we are doing. And remember, what we do expresses our belief. And so the priest says the very same words and Jesus' body, blood, soul, and divinity is made present there under the sign and symbol of a piece of bread and a cup of wine. No longer wine, no longer bread, although you hear many people say as much or think as much. It's not. It's His blood, and it's going to flow through our veins so that we might be the pure, holy people of God that we're called to be week after week, more and more. Perfect practice makes perfect. We have the Eucharistic prayer. It's made present. The priest prays it because he stands as the person of Christ praying the same prayer that he prayed 2,000 years ago. And you participate. At the very end, you give a very loud, hopefully, and resounding amen. I believe. Let it be so. Through your body and blood, through Jesus, all glory and honor is yours, Father. This is why we're here. It's the doxology. It's the climax of the whole point. And then we move quickly into the communion rite. We pray the Our Father. It's not about the community. And so it's really not appropriate to join hands. That communion will come later in Holy Communion. At the Our Father, we're about asking the Father to prepare us for communion. Give us our daily bread. Forgive us our sins. Once again, make us worthy. Give us, deliver us from all evil. And then the priest responds or 
he adds to that prayer, deliver us, Lord, from every evil and grant us peace in our day. As we wait in joyful hope for the coming of your Son, who is now here present in sign and symbol, but we long for the reality of his coming. And then he asks for that peace that each one of us desires in our heart to be made present. My peace I give to you. And Jesus gives it to us. And so he says, peace be with you. And then you receive it. And an optional sign of peace is there. Because the peace is already made present through Jesus' gesture in the person of the priest. So it's not shooting it across the hall or across the aisle. It's a mere recognition of peace be with you. The peace that is made present in the sacrifice. Peace be with you near me. And then we cry out, Lamb of God, who takes away the sins of the world, once again, have mercy. Have mercy. Grant us peace. And the priest says, this is the Lamb of God. He responds to your prayer. God responds to your prayer. Have mercy. This is the Lamb of God. Happy are those who are called to His supper. Once again, Lord, I'm not worthy to receive you. But only say the word, and I shall be healed. And he says the word, come, all you who are thirsty, all you who are hungry, and receive without price. You cannot pay. I already did the price of my blood. Receive, and I will fill fill your every longing. We come forward as a sign of faith. We stand, we we walk in procession as a profession of our faith. This is why those who have taken themselves out of communion through mortal sin should stay in the pew. This is why those who are not in full communion, our separated brethren, should stay. Because the procession is a sign of communion and a sign of faith in the real presence of Jesus. And so we come forward, the body of Christ. And the body of Christ presents the body of Christ to the body of Christ. And we say, Amen. I believe. And He enters into us. And we go back. And in that communion, we praise Him with the communion chant. And then hopefully there's some silence so that we can participate in union, in love, with God who loves us more than we can imagine. And to tell Him how much we are grateful for Him. But most importantly, to receive His love so that as we are very quickly sent forth, we may go in peace to love and serve the Lord. And so what we do at Mass presents our faith. It perfects us and helps us to give glory and honor to God and prepares us for the fulfillment of what we receive in anticipation, the Kingdom of God, as it is made present in sign and symbol. At every holy sacrifice of the Mass, heaven opens up and we enter in. And the communion that we will experience for all eternity is made ours for 10 minutes. And if we realized the glory, if we realized the immensity, the infinity of that love, we would die in that very moment. And so the church gives us the ritual week after week to help us 
to prepare us, to perfect us, so that when that time does come, we will be ready to enter in and receive. Father has said that he's willing to answer any questions that people want to ask if you want to come up. So for about 15 minutes, if it takes that long, and I'm guessing it might, uh, you're free to answer questions. The thing I ask is, Rick has a mic, and the mic is for the taping. Um, so if you have a question, just raise your hand, wait for Rick to get to you, and then ask him. You're going to stuff to speak loudly enough for everybody else to hear. And again, like all our other Theology Untaps, this one is being taped so it's available um, online, the audio, and then the video can be checked out from the uh, library in the diocesan offices. But if there's any questions for Father, let's see. Since the uh, primary effect of the Eucharist is to uh, help us to be more loving people, uh, why is it not appropriate for people who are not Catholics to come up in the line and receive a blessing. We're reaching out, with a, we're showing an act of love for them. You're right, there is a sense of love. Repeat the question, why is, why is it not an act of love to have those who are our separate brethren not come forward and receive a blessing when the fruit of the Eucharist is love itself? And I would respond, while it is a, a generous gesture, it's not an appropriate gesture at that time. Because that moment, as I said, is really about communion. And they're not in communion, full communion at least. And they don't have the same faith, at least not in its fullness, that we have. And so the action that is going on is much stronger. And if they're there, it's somewhat contrary to the action. We've already extended a sign of love, I would say, by allowing them into the doors. Because in the ancient church, they wouldn't have even got in to the vestibule. They would have still been out in the waiting area until they were made full members of the body of Christ. And so while it may be a, a gesture of love, yes, to give them a blessing, it's really contrary to the faith, and that's why the rite does not say, invite the Protestants forward and give them a blessing. If it said that, then we would do it. Remember, what we do expresses our faith. And if we change the red or the black, we may change the presentation of the faith. And so it might be actually a more loving gesture, Monsignor, to say, here is our faith. We want you to believe in it as we believe in it. And as a parent scolds their child, oh, well, this is not a scolding, says in a tough love, please stay and pray for Christian union. Please pray that the faith that Jesus gave us might once again be made whole in its public profession. And so it might be actually more loving and actually less loving to invite them forward and give them a blessing. Another question? 
wait for the mic. Right, right there in the green. I've just been wondering how, with the Vatican II changes that have been made in our church, um, how can Latin Mass still go on? What is the stance with that in relation to what you're speaking with when you first started the talk today, with the, it being very ritual? Is that still considered a valid Mass on a Sunday, if we were to go? The question is, with the changes of Vatican II, why would there still be a desire for the Latin Mass? Is it still valid? The old Latin Mass. First and foremost, the question is answered by reading the Vatican II documents. Vatican II never asked for Latin to disappear. And in fact, I would suggest 10 years from now, maybe longer, depending on uh, the priests first and foremost, but also the laity, and maybe even higher up, the bishops, you'll see more Latin at Mass. Because the Vatican Council said that Latin is to have pride of place, and where it is necessary, the vernacular may be used. And it is to be used to foster the understanding of the people. In those things that change each week, the opening prayer, the readings, and the homily, and those things which are the same, the ordinary of the Mass, Vatican II says should be in Latin. And so you'll begin to see that. The same document also says that the old rite is to continue. But where renovation or renewal is needed, it may take place. May take place. But the old rite of 62 is still to be celebrated universally. Now that didn't happen because all of a sudden we shifted out. The pendulum swung, the wind blew in, and blew everything kind of into disorder. And now that the winds have settled, the dust has settled, we're beginning to sort through things. And we have now the third typical edition in the process of being written of our English translation. We have the third edition of how to do it since 1969. And this document and the 2004 document written by the Vatican on how to implement this says Latin is to be used and given pride of place. And it's really the priest's prerogative to celebrate the 69 Mass in Latin as much as he desires and as much as the people are taught how to do it. The Old Mass continues and we have it at our cathedral and really should be, if possible, in every parish because it's part of our heritage. Does it make the new Mass invalid? No. What we have is part of our tradition as well as the tradition develops. And so the 69 Mass is equally as valid as the 62 Mass, although it's said normally in the vernacular, but that's changing slowly. And down the road from now, you'll see more Latin. If you come to Our Lady of Guadalupe, we've got a little Latin. And Holy Spirit has a Saturday morning Latin Mass. I also have some Latin, um, more than my normal Sunday Mass, on Saturday as well. Options should be given. But what should not be given, or should be taken away, is the option for Latin. It's our mother tongue, as Catholics. It's the language that unites us. If you go to Africa, and you hear it in Latin, you know you're in the right place. If you're hearing it in Swahili, you don't know what's going on. And if you hear it in Latin, you will. 
Latin unites us. It would be my goal as uh, a, a parochial vicar at, at a Hispanic parish to bring the two cultures together through the Latin somewhere down the road. Because the Latin takes us out of our comfort zone, whether we're Hispanic or American, and it unites us. It's also a beautiful and uh, dead language because it's no longer spoken, but it's the language of the church. It's the language that is rich in majesty and has a different sound to us, and so it immediately enters us into mystery, takes the focus off of our surface understanding and takes us into the mystery that we're celebrating. Another question? Father Justin, if you could um, uh, clarify on your point, maybe I misunderstood, but you said it was not appropriate to hold hands when you're saying the Our Father at Mass. Can you expand on that a little bit? The question is about the Our Father and the holding of hands. If we take the general principle, do what is in black and don't do what is, or, and do what is in red, it does not say in the red for the people to hold hands. Therefore, in that much, it shouldn't be done. Simply. But, to expound on the reason why, the Our Father is principally not about the ourness of the Our Father. And a gesture of hand-holding really is a very strong gesture of ourness, community. Now, some people don't like to hold hands. And so, all of a sudden, you've got now a gesture of imposition as opposed to a gesture of community. And so you might be entering into some turmoil in the sign itself. Some people might, be, have, might have grown up in a, in a family where you just didn't touch one another. The exterior expressions of love were not very readily done. And so all of a sudden you're doing this and you might be invading somebody and so that sign is really can be contrary to what it is hopefully trying to project into the liturgy. But ultimately, the Our Father is not about community. It's about our Father who provides for our needs. And so we're crying out, after He's changed our gifts of bread and wine into the bread of life and the cup of eternal salvation, to give it to us. You are holy. Your name is holy. Hallowed be your name. Um, thy kingdom come, which is made present in sign and symbol in the Eucharist. Let it come. Your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. We're crying out that His plan of salvation will be made present and effective, not expressing our community. And then asking Him to give us daily bread to forgive us our sins and prepare us for that peace by removing all evil. And so the gesture, while it might be nice, really is contrary again to the moment. Communion is made present through Holy Communion, through the procession, and through the reception of that which unites us and ultimately makes us the body of Christ, the body of Christ itself. Speaking of the Our Father, uh, the, the bishops did give instructions for us to um, put our hands down in a um, gesture. 
I couldn't quite figure out in the instructions that they gave us what they meant by it. Places, in some ways, an Oran's position has been suggested. Hands forward or hands down, but in some way, an Oran's position. This is what is called for when the priest prays. It's the praying position of the church. Their suggestion, while noble, has not received recognition from Rome. Until it does, it really shouldn't be implemented. Like anything that the conference would suggest on that level. It needs to have recognition to be made or to be implemented. Now, their desire is noble, as I said. Maybe it, it, it works because the Our Father really is not a presidential prayer. It's not a prayer that's um, for the priest alone, like the opening prayer, like the Eucharistic prayer, like the closing prayer. It's a prayer of the body, yes. It's a prayer of the people, of God. And so, if the Oran's position then is a gesture of prayer, possibly, the, in the bishop's mind, it makes sense then to extend that position of prayer to the people as a way to counterbalance the gesture of uh, hand-holding. I would humbly suggest that hands folded is sufficient, or hands at your side or on the pew praying. Um, because there's a danger potentially in making the presidential position the prayer, pr the posture of the people, because it's uh, it is normally associated with the presider, the head of the community who prays in an Oran's position. We're at 7:30 here, and so oh, we get one more question. In the uh, traditional Latin Mass, we kneel for the final blessing. Is it inappropriate to genuflect or kneel for the final blessing in the uh, New Order Mass? The question is, in the, in the 62 Mass, one would kneel to receive the final blessing. Is it appropriate to kneel in the 69 Mass as we have it now? I would respond, while the posture does res reflect one's piety in reception of the blessing, it really should not be done. Um, one, because the rubrics don't call for it but uh, anymore. But does that make it wrong to do it? No. Does it take you out of communion in some way with the rest of the posture of the praying community? Yes, in some ways. Does it draw attention to yourself? Yes, because you're doing something other than what the rest of the body is doing. And so, really, should it be done? Probably not. Is it wrong? Ultimately, no, because uh, it still is a valid gesture in the old rite. It's no longer in the rubric, so it, in this sense, shouldn't be done. Just as much as the striking of the breast three times it, uh, is not called for anymore, except for a single strike in the new mass. Is it wrong to just strike your breast three times in my, um, in, in the confidior, the I confess to you, Almighty God, that prayer at the beginning of mass? Is it wrong to do it? No, it's an expression of piety. The rubrics only call for one, and so are you extending your piety? Yes. And with this one, you're not drawing a lot of attention to yourself. So, um, but I would say one should maybe hesitate in, in kneeling to receive the blessing in the new rite uh, until maybe the new rite is tweaked a little bit, if it will ever be in that, in that particular part, to reflect the old rite. I don't know. I don't even know, I don't believe that's in the making 
as far as the uh, new translation goes because we have the how-to. We're waiting for the words.